0: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hi, everybody. I'm Kyle Klarich, here to do Interview with the Experts, and I have the great pleasure to introduce my colleague and dear friend, Dr. J. O. Samsung professor of cardiology, who has had many leadership and uh, positional roles, not only in our own institution, but in societies and around the world. But I think he's here today to talk about one of his favorite topics, which is near and dear to his heart as the director of the pericardial disease clinic, actually the director and founder of the pericardial disease clinic. We are going to be talking to the world's expert on constrictive pericarditis. So welcome Jay. So Jay, why are we so interested in constrictive pericarditis at the Mayo Clinic?
1: (laughs) That's a a great question. You know, actually the Mayo Clinic uh, cardiology and cardiac surgery uh, has a long uh, history and tradition of having this uh, 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 medical and surgical expertise uh, uh, in constrictive pericarditis. And you may know, that pericardiectomy was actually the first cardiac surgery at Mayo Clinic in 1935, even wow. without even without a cardio a pulmonary bypass. And since then, we uh, uh, you know have uh, trained expert surgeons and also a lot of clinicians uh, in this particular uh, disease, which has been very challenging to uh, diagnose and manage. So that's how uh, Mayo Clinic has studied from 1935, so almost 100 years ago.
0: Wow, that's that's a really impressive, long history. And I know that you've spent a great portion of your career studying it. It's hard to make the diagnosis, but can you explain to our audience why it's so important to make the diagnosis
1: for constriction? Uh, Yes, you know, since this is not that common uh, condition, uh, uh, you know, many of us clinicians do not think of constriction as one of differentials. And, but there are uh, uh, phenotypical or clinical presentations of heart failure, right? Heart failure, you know, and shortness of breath uh, and uh, leg edema, all of this are not not specific for constriction. So, yeah, think about so many other conditions uh, and sometimes even uh, liver disease and pulmonary disease and things like that. So it's so important that we make the diagnosis so that patient doesn't go around, you know, looking for their conditions. we have seen patients not diagnosed for several years, even after the uh, uh, liver biopsies and bronchoscopies and multiple cardiac testing uh, and things like that. So I think it's also so important that we make the diagnosis. So we we <laughs> explain patient symptoms and the presentations, and uh, most importantly, unfortunately for patients, though uh, under uh, uh, you know or, or a good experienced hands, this is a curable problems. I mean we do. Pericardiectomy, as as I mentioned, there was a first operation at Mayo Clinic in 1935, and uh, you know, if we do a good pericardiectomy, complete pericardiectomy, patients' heart failure can be cured. So that's why it's so important that we make that diagnosis.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And one thing you alluded to, but maybe you could just expand upon. A lot of these patients present with with liver failure, with right-sided heart failure, but it it shows up in our our liver patient population. Do you want to say anything more about that? Because I think that's a really important clinical clue for our colleagues that might be listening.
1: Right, I mean, you know, because the, you know, there's a condition, uh, that's the uh, right at venous congestion. uh, Congestion goes everywhere, right? Uh, uh, To to peripheral legs, uh, ascites, but also the significant uh, uh, congestion can happen in the liver. So, Mm -hmm. liver function abnormalities and the hepatomegaly. Uh, And so, if you don't think of constriction and you focus on liver problem, then you're doing a lot of liver (laughs) evaluation and including liver biopsy. We haven't seen many patients who had liver biopsy showing congestion, then think of constriction. So, I think it's so important that when someone has a liver function abnormality, we look at patient's jugular venous pressure. That's what the Clinical evaluation comes so important. You know, you make sure that the venous pressure is not elevated or is elevated. So we're looking for cardiac condition that way. So I think it's very important that you know we actually even had a few patients uh, even here and elsewhere that they about to go to liver transplant because of that, and then uh, they did the uh, general medical evaluation for pre-op, and then we end up detecting constrictive pericarditis. Not. Often, but it can really happen in some patients yeah. too.
0: If they were to go to liver biopsy, and I know at our institution, the GI colleagues are pretty tuned into this constrictive patient yes. population because they've seen a lot of it and they then refer them to right. us, actually. they refer right. to to our hepatobiliary group and then they refer them to cardiology. But when they do the liver biopsy, what are they likely to see?
1: They they just, see, uh, uh, you know, venous congestion, uh, not a or p- 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 liver disease. It's more of the... Uh, Venous congestion, they're going to see. So, okay.
0: Well, again, another important clue. So, patients presenting with hepatic failure and otherwise heart failure type symptoms with the elevated JVP and uh, an unremarkable liver biopsy think constriction. So, cath has probably been considered the gold standard for diagnosis. Yes. But is imaging Becoming increasingly important, or would you say it's even maybe taken over the position of catherine Well, how do you how do we go about the algorithmic approach to diagnosing?
1: You capital? know, that's how I got really involved in this constricted pericarditis when I joined your staff. You know, you know, Liv Hadley from Norway, pioneer for uh, Doppler and echocardiography, came to us uh, as a uh, visiting professor with uh, Dr. Tajik and was my mentor, and I. Uh, you we know, were just fascinated by the how uh, Doppler echocardiography was able to really assess hemodynamics. And then she showed to us uh, from her work uh, with Chris Appleton uh, at Stanford that, that they could diagnose constriction and separate from restricted cardiomyopathy. And I thought, you know, I just did one quick project and done with it. But then that's become my, my profession uh, for the last 35 years. But if you look at the uh, actual hemodynamic assessment, it's really interesting because uh, the, you know, the hemodynamic criteria by cardiac cath on constricted pericarditis actually was based on one patient in 1946 uh, uh, from the NYU that uh, Richard and Conan, you know, for the uh, Nobel Prize winner for the cardiac catheterization. radiation. They uh, published uh, many case reports of the interesting case study, hemodynamic studies, and one of them uh, was the uh, uh, constriction, you know, uh, increased right atrial pressures and the square root signs and all that we we're looking for. And that was actually described even before the cardiac amyloid or restrictive cardiomyopathy. And then we are seeing many other reports in 19, 1950s that uh, uh, cardiac amyloidosis or restrictive myocardial disease simulating uh, hemodynamics of a constricted pericarditis. So somehow though it stayed with us for a long time, uh, equal ideations and uh, diastolic pressures and all of that as we know, but we realized that a lot of overlap and Dr. Nishimura done a lot of work and our hemodynamic colleagues done a lot of work there that we shown that traditional cardiac cath uh, criterias has about 75 to 80% overlap uh, with, the, uh, uh, with uh, uh, myocardial disease. And that's where the, I think echocardiography uh, hemodynamics that we worked on uh, is a lot more specific uh, and uh, separate the myocardial disease uh, from the uh, uh, pericardial disease and we can diagnose pretty nicely. And it's interesting thing is that from that, our uh, imaging work, <laughs> the cardiac catheterization criteria also has changed. Uh, so then not only, you know, we are looking at the equalization of pressures and increased atrial pressure, we're looking at discordance of the LV and RV pressures and all of that, uh, which is quite unique uh, to the uh, condition of a constricted pericolitis. So it's been a kind of interesting uh, uh, journey uh, for both uh, invasive and non-invasive uh, uh, imaging uh, diagnosis of constriction.
0: So in your practice, do you start out with an echo? I
1: mean, I think the, uh, you know, not... Because I'm, I'm an echocardiographer, but I think most of uh, uh, cardiology practice—I mean, you know, heart failure and dyspnea are the you know major practice—and I think most of us, uh, not just an echocardiographer, most of cardiologists, I think, starts with the echocardiography uh, as an initial uh, imaging or diagnostic, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, technique, and. Uh, We've been kind of very fortunate uh, uh, because we have trained our sonographers and we have uh, trained our fellows and also our old uh, staff uh, in how to detect constriction just looking at echocardiography, It's amazing that you know I get a call almost weekly, uh, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes daily from sonographers. I mean, doctor, you know, I think this uh, constriction here because uh, they can. Really recognize just looking at the 2D septal motion change, and then much inflow velocities and, and the hepatic vein Dopplers and few things they can do in tissue Doppler imaging, they able to really uh, diagnose very nicely. I think that's one of the reason that we've been having so many success and so many patients here in constriction because not you know uh, clinicians detecting it clinically, but when they come to echo lab, when our sonographer staff. And our fellows and then our our echocardiography staff have uh, been able to uh, really diagnose it very nicely. Right.
0: Yes. They've got their antenna up looking for that in heart failure patients, correct? Right. right. Yes.
1: It's interesting.
0: So um, do you think there are some of these patients with constrictive pericarditis that could be treated medically? Uh, you, you know, we talked a little bit about the first surgery at Mayo Clinic in, I think you said 1935, was a pericardiectomy but has that evolved or is it still a surgical disease?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. mostly uh, it's still surgical uh, conditions. And um, it's interesting also the I mentioned Dr. Hatley and we had an opportunity to visit her in Norway uh, after we uh, got to know her well and work with her, collaborate with her. And she, I still remember uh, she showed me um, a case, uh, young women uh, who came in with uh, constrictive chemodynamics and uh, you know, she was uh, unstable hemodynamically, jugular venous pressure is quite elevated. And she showed me, you know she had the uh, pericarditis some time ago and she has constriction and I could tell that. And she told me when she gave a steroid uh, intravenously, within a few hours and next two days, almost all hemodynamics dissolved. And she thought that the, it takes uh, about one to three months of an uh, inflamed pericardium to become scar, so we have an opportunity to actually use anti-inflammatory drugs, either NSAID or steroid, to actually calm down the or, or uh, uh, you know eliminate the uh, pericardial inflammation. Then we may be able to treat uh, constrictive pericarditis. We call it a transition. So when we when we return we actually uh, found uh, several patients and we published it. And uh, uh, and we are very uh, surprised that actually that some people responded to the uh, the medical therapy uh, either steroid or uh, NSAID depending on the clinical situation. And then, uh, as we have the CT and cardiac MRI, more multimodality imaging, we're able to actually detect the amount of uh, pericardial inflammations by delayed enhancement and things like that. as You know, and then when a patient presents with a, a kind of recent onset of constriction. And there are uh, inflammatory biomarkers like a CRP and is elevated. And we show uh, cardiac MRI showing very juicy looking <laughs> inflammation of the pericardium. Those are the predictor that they can respond uh, to a constricted pericarditis. And also the important thing is post-pericardomy syndrome. I mean, the, now currently the you know mm-hmm. cardiac surgery is the most common cause of constriction. You know, It happens mm-hmm. two or three, four or five years later. But I think they start with the uh, inflammation first, maybe settles down a bit and then become scar year two, three years later. So, uh, you know, I think uh, it, sometimes when patient presents with a post-pericariotomy syndrome and constrictive hemodynamics, even that's a situation that we can treat with the uh, anti-inflammatory steroid. Well, and the other situation is we found that about 16 to 20% of the patients who undergo pericardiosynthesis, especially with the bloody effusion, uh, which is more common with a lot of innovations we are doing, they have a high frequency of uh, developing effusive constriction. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can go on uh, with the the, uh, chronic constricted pericarditis. It used to be half of those patients requiring pericardectomy, but once we start treating them with medical therapy, Mm -hmm. we can prevent chronic constriction and also uh, uh, prevent the uh, effusive constrictive pericardia. So I think uh, you're, you're, to, to answer your question, the medical therapy uh, can be done in a subset of patients if you can find them early enough.
0: And, and the subset would be markered by having inflammatory markers, either SED rate or CRP, and then you would follow that up with an MRI to show the inflammatory um, condition of the pericardium rather than being completely scarred.
1: Yes. And also the, you know, as you know, as you mentioned, I also work uh, with the Korean Medical Center. They have uh, still a lot of tuberculosis, pericarditis and and things like that. And we collaborate and we published paper that uh, they use a PET scan, Mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, actually more sensitive than cardiac MRI. We haven't done that many of our studies here. So any uh, imaging modalities can uh, tell us the pericardial inflammation in patients with the constrictive hemodynamics. I think you may want to treat them uh, with the medical therapy first, because the uh, the medical therapy when it works, it works very relatively quickly. We don't have to wait for a month. We wait for a week to two weeks at most. If they do not respond, they're not going to respond to the medical therapy, and then we can go on with the uh, surgical uh, uh, recommendation and, and consideration that time. So
0: that's also a good point that you don't have to wait forever for them to, to yes. get better. But we've also been taught that at least in some of these pericardial uh, diseases, especially acute pericarditis, you might not want to use steroids in that setting.
1: You know, the, there's a little confusion, I think, uh, uh, because the, I think it's great that the, the clinicians uh, recognize the problems with the steroid, uh, with, uh, which uh, results in high recurrence. That's the case of the acute and recurrent pericarditis with yeah. a lot of chest pain or immune disease. But someone has a trauma, while someone has the uh, transient constriction by cardiac surgery or other things with no chest pain main problem is a uh, hemodynamic abnormality of constriction i think steroid is is probably the best anti inflammatory uh, than the uh, non steroidal because of you know if somebody just short of breath a little bit of you know a little bit of peripheral edema you may want to try non uh, you know steroidal but uh about GVP elevations and pro societies. And you know, those patients, you wanna be very aggressive with the anti-inflammatory with the steroid and you don't have to really worry about the uh, recurrence in that particular situation. So,
0: well, those are, those are really good points. Yes. yes. Um, you kind of mentioned effusive constrictive or mm-hmm. transient constriction. That tends to be related to patients that are have, having, or have had heart surgery or maybe one of our colleagues in the cath lab and then got a pericardial infusion. That's yes. something a Not that that would ever happen to our colleagues, but you yes. know. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, again, the uh, you know, the bloody effusion is more likely, uh, 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 more inflammatory to the pericardium than serous, and, you know, serous and other other uh, fluid. And uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Miranda, as you know, our young colleagues and uh, Ellen Lewis, we've been working on the fused constrictive pericarditis. And when you look at the about three hundred some consecutive patients with the pericardiosynthesis uh, that Dr. Larry Senex and others have done, uh, we found that about uh, 16% of them actually do have echo evidence of constriction after pericardiosynthesis. I know the, uh, uh, you know, so far uh, uh, the most practitioners feel that we can make effusive constrictive diagnosis only by right at cath. But that's not really true. If we did, you know, show the same diagnostic criteria by echocardiography, by much inflow velocity uh, and tissue Doppler and hepatic vein, and maybe I can even show you how we do that. Uh, after pericardiosynthesis, and also if you see the jugular venous pressure elevation after pericardiosynthesis, that patient has a effusive constricted pericarditis and we need to treat them uh, quite uh, aggressively because some of them develop, uh, you know. Uh, you know, chronic constricted pericarditis and initial data from Spain and also the Stanford show us that the, uh, you know, almost more than half of the patients with the effusive constricted pericarditis on the, uh, require pericardiectomy, uh, you know, down the road. But our data, after we treated more aggressively with the NSAID and Colchicin, we only had two patients out of hundred some patients, only two percent, only two percent out of uh, 160 patients or so uh, a required pericardectomy. So our practice now, most of the times, if someone has a, a, a pericardosynthesis, we really want them to be treated with the uh, NSAID for one month and colchicin for three months, uh, unless there is a contraindication for that, to make sure that, you know, they don't really develop this effusive uh, constriction. And then chronic constrictive pericarditis. Those, those are fantastic tips. Thank you. I just want to make a uh, one more comment. A sure. uh, couple interesting uh, 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 things that we we uh, <laughs> recognize with the constriction <laughs> that uh, you know, some of listeners may not uh, experience, may see it, and may not recognize. But the, we have seen patients with uh, 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 coronary compression uh, in a coronary angiography because of the calcific or thick uh scar band the compressing it it happens maybe you know uh, responsible for the uh, for chest pain sometimes we have seen patients present with the predominant hy- hypoxemia because they have a pfo and then right atrial pressure goes up uh, uh, goes up and the higher than the left atrial pressure and they have uh, some prefilled but main problem is hypoxemia with the saturation you know less than 80s and things like that so that's something to uh, to be uh, remindful uh, mindful about, and the other thing is the importance of the tricuspid valve regurgitation. So one third of the patients with the constriction we are seeing now, because we are now seeing very different population from nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, because we are seeing many patients with the myocardial disease, radiation therapy, cardiac surgery, and things like that. So one third of our patients we are seeing with the constriction, they actually do have tricuspid valve regurgitation, and they develop, you know, they do have a, a worse clinical outcome. And also we have seen patients after pericardectomy intraoperatively, they develop worsening of the AB valve regurgitation. So it's so important that uh, uh, intraoperatively, I'm sure most of centers do that, but intraoperative transesophageal cardiomyopathy to make sure that they do not have the uh, most significant Uh, uh, especially the tricuspital regurgitation with the tethering of the RV wall and things like this. So I just wanna share that uh, with the audience that we may not seen those uh, unusual complications. Oh, those are really
0: important uh, learnings from the research that you and your colleagues in the pericardial disease group have, have been really working hard to get out there. So I appreciate you bringing those forward. So Jay, that's probably a great spot for us to stop. I wanna thank you for your expertise thank you for your mentorship over the years and thank you most and foremost for all the incredible work that you and your entire team have done to really help the clinicians understand and diagnose constriction and even these new clues that you're giving us with this interview. So thank you very much for your time and your efforts and I hope you have a great day.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm so grateful though, you know, for the opportunity and then uh being a member of this uh, fantastic team, and also the support we have had from the uh, uh, CV and cardiac surgical uh, uh, leadership and the clinic. And so uh, I'm just uh, happy to be here, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that today.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.